Welcome to Base Space. A crypto podcast. Base Space. Uh, I know Mewtwo think a lot of people when we were first in here, but the support has been overwhelming. There's over 260 of y'all in here, and uh, a lot of you guys have been here from day one. So I just want to say thank you to everybody before we start. Uh, it definitely means a lot to us. Yeah, 100%. This has been a, a crazy journey. And like CLG, you were, I think, like episode two or three of our of our show, which is incredible. Yeah, it seems like that was like forever ago at this point. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Chase, you were going to say something? No, I was just I was thinking in my head, and I was like, I, I think actually CLG is the most reoccurring guest we've had. Because he's the best guest. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good time on here. I, I never, I, I always enjoy coming back here. It's always good discussion. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm honestly, I always look forward to our conversations, but I think with the timing of a recent upload from Sergey himself, I think this conversation is going to be a little bit, uh, just a little bit better than the, the previous ones. Yeah, yeah, should be some pretty exciting stuff. A hundred percent. I think we'll, I think we'll get started. Uh, for, for everyone here that's new and might not be familiar, uh, welcome to the base space. Uh, for a little context, it's kind of just started out as like, a funny like community chat like we were planning world domination on a whiteboard <laughs> and uh it slowly grew into kind of just like an educational show where we bring on all different types of projects and and community speakers in in the crypto space and just provide like an educational platform um and all of our episodes are uploaded uh afterwards like our youtube channel spotify um, apple Podcasts. so you know, if you guys have to dip out, you miss anything, you can totally uh, find it online afterwards. Uh, and my name is Mewtwo, and I'm the founder of the Base Space. And I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Chase and Super High. Say what's up, guys. How's it going, guys? Chase here. Thanks for tuning in tonight. What's up, guys? My name's Super. And uh, CLG, I, I don't think you need an introduction, but... For those that might not be familiar with, with your role and like the Chainlink community and maybe just give like a brief description of, of what you do. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll keep it brief. So basically I'm Chainlink God. I'm a Chainlink community ambassador. So I kind of help educate the community on all things Chainlink, kind of breaking down complex concepts and topics into more digestible formats effectively. So I'm basically that the one frog on Twitter who's obsessed with Chainlink and Anytime there's FUD or there's any news, then you'll know I'll be right on top of that. And we do appreciate you shutting down the FUD, that's for sure. Um, and I know we're, we're getting a ton of brand new listeners uh, that might not even know like what Chainlink is at, at like a very high level. Um, CLG, could you do us the honors and kind of summarize um, at a very high level like what, what Chainlink is and, and what it does for the crypto ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So basically... Chainlink's a decentralized Oracle network. And what that means is it connects blockchains and Web3 protocols to the external world. So basically, this is important because blockchains can't connect to external data resources on their own. So they don't know, you know the price of uh, certain assets. They don't know the weather in certain locations. They don't have access to external systems. On their own, they usually can't even connect to other blockchains. So 
Chainlink effectively serves as secure middleware, connecting all these different chains, Ethereum, you know, uh, Solana, all these L2 networks, Arbitrum, all these different networks to the external resources that they require in order to execute smart contracts. So if it's something like DeFi, then it needs access to real world market data. If it's insurance, then it needs weather data. And that data delivery is kind of the tip of the iceberg, but basically Chainlink's uh, universal middleware for providing blockchains access to anything that they can't natively uh, achieve on their own. So data delivery, computation, and interoperability. So Chainlink's kind of the, the glue of the Web3 ecosystem, making sure everything's kind of running in sync and connecting all the different systems together to create one, uh, one universal ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. It's the glue. It's essential for DeFi. Um, it's so, so important to everything that's happening in the crypto space. And um, shout out to the Chainlink team. Just love everything that they're doing from like a tech standpoint, but also just from, um, you know, a community building standpoint and helping other pro- protocols kind of rise up and, and thrive and just move, move crypto in, in the right direction. So I'm loving it. Yeah. Um, CLG, I know you're probably already expecting a ton of questions uh, revolving from like CCIP staking um, and some of the stuff that was brought up in the latest video that Sergey uploaded around the future of Chainlink. But before we kind of like hop into the questions, actually kind of start to really dive in, dive in underneath the hood. I'm curious, like what, what were some of your top takeaways um, from that video this past week? Yeah, that, that video had a, <laughs> had a ton of different, uh, a lot of different information in there. I think that's kind of breaking down what is cryptographic truth, I think kind of provides a lot of perspective on why, you know, what's kind of the envisioned goal, why any of this really matters to create a more deterministic and more truthful system. I think a lot of the metrics that were kind of shown throughout the kind of the middle part of the presentation, I think kind of also really put into perspective Chainlink's place in this growing ecosystem. So things like, you know, over a billion data points delivered on chain, $75 billion, uh, $75 billion total value secured, things like 700, uh, heterogeneous independent Oracle networks, 2.5 million <laughs> off-chain requests or requests for off-chain computation. Like a lot of these metrics that Chainlink has kind of grown significantly over the past year. And then I think what's really stood out to a lot of people and to me as well was kind of the, like the overarching goals for Chainlink in the next year. So kind of uh, just highlighting that staking is a major goal, getting that released. CCIP, which I'm sure we'll get into, and then Chainlink is an abstraction layer. But I think overall, it really set the perspective that the Chainlink network as a whole has grown significantly in the past year towards the overarching goal of kind of creating a world powered by cryptographic truth and how we're kind of, uh, how the network as a whole is kind of striving forward to achieve that goal and scale up effectively. So I thought it brought a lot of perspective. And I think a lot of the the, the stats that were kind of brought up in the the long-term goals, I think, brought a lot of a lot of perspective. So I thought it was one of the best presentations that Sergey has given, and I think a lot of people got a lot of good, good information. I mean, people love staking, of course, but I think a lot of, like, uh, even the, you know, little nuggets of, like, there being Oracle networks that are already profitable and sustainable based on user fees. I mean, I think that's a pretty significant milestone in terms of the, the long-term growth of the network. So I thought overall it was a, it was a very insightful presentation. Yeah, you uh, you touched on one thing that uh, that really stuck out to me. It was just the fundamental metrics. And if you look at across the board, across many different metrics, they're all up and to the right. And it's just 
it's just crazy to see the growth of the Chainlink ecosystem just over this past year. But I'd imagine, you know, from your vantage point or a lot of the Link Marines tuning in tonight that have been in for years, you know, it, it's probably amazing to see the growth that has occurred since, you know, 2019 and 2018 um, from for some of you guys. And even just kind of starting off the presentation, I know it's been kind of a meme how people have about you talked about what is Web3. Right. And I loved how Sergey started off with the presentation, really kind of laying out his vision of what Web3 really means. Because even myself, like I had an idea of what Web3 means, but actually seeing that it's definitive truth and it's cryptographic guarantees that are deterministic and just kind of like that matrix that, that he lays out in the presentation. I, I really appreciated that um, and why specifically and what value that brings to this new Web3 versus this Web2 world that we're, we'll soon be leaving. Um, yeah, I think that presentation really helped. Like, it was kind of zooming out in the sense of like, we have this great technology, but like fundamentally, why does any of this really matter? And it's kind of the evolution of the web as a whole. I mean, and I think a lot of the data that was kind of presented just really reinforces that there is a true demand for cryptographic truth. It's very kind of early days and kind of almost primitive in the sense of the use cases today. But like the underlying infrastructure is being set up and it's already being adopted at a major scale within crypto. And I think over time, it's inevitable that all the, all, everything that Chainlink is doing for the Web3 ecosystem, like in its current form today, is going to translate to all the traditional industries that have kind of been plagued by paper-based guarantees and then no like shared truth at all. And I think that's uh, that kind of that long-term vision, I think kind of it, it all compiled together. And I think it's... Uh, it prevents a, presents a very clear picture on the path forward for not just Chainlink, but like the Web3 and the crypto ecosystem as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, and you, you talked about Chainlink services, right? So let's, let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. Um, Sergey, in the video, he actually touched on how more smart contracts equals more decentralized services. And uh, currently, I feel like when, whenever people think about Chainlink, it kind of feels that the common narrative is, is around price feeds. Could you expand on the multitude of offerings that Chainlink currently provides and also will provide with the growth of the adoption of smart contracts? Yeah, sure thing. And it's, it's definitely true. When, uh, when people who, don't, who haven't necessarily dived into Chainlink usually think of it, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's price feeds on Ethereum, enables DeFi. And it certainly does do that. But Chainlink ultimately, as I kind of noted before, is like a, it's like the glue of the ecosystem. So uh, there's kind of, I would say, like three different uh, categories of services effectively the Chainlink network provides. Like the first is just uh, data delivery. So relaying real world data onto the blockchain. So the most common is price feeds, financial market data for DeFi, because DeFi is like the product market fit of crypto in the Web3 space. You know, once you put price data on chain, now you can create all these DeFi applications and that's where the demand is. But there's also other pieces of data being delivered on chain, like weather data and like sports data that you can create insurance agreements about, prediction markets about. Like once you put that data on chain, then you have all these new use cases and new contracts that could be deployed to use that data. And so as more contracts are deployed and there's more users adopting it, then that signals more demand from data providers to use Chainlink to put their data on chain. And it kind of fuels this virtuous cycle in terms of how data kind of fuels the system. But Data delivery is kind of one aspect of how Chainlink works. It's kind of like one cylinder. The others is like a, one that Chainlink is stepping more and more into is off-chain computation. So 
you know, doing everything on chain uh, isn't always possible. Either it's, you know, it's too expensive or it's impractical or it's uh, simply too expensive or you just don't have the functionality. So a lot of the capabilities of Chainlink that we've kind of seen roll out over the past year or two or so is kind of revolving around how can we introduce off-chain computations. So you have things like VRF or verifiable randomness, and that's been used <laughs> Uh, that's been used extremely heavily in uh, NFTs, dynamic NFTs, and on-chain gaming. That's uh, VRF has had over you know 2.5 million uh, requests fulfilled since it was initially released, and now it's on multiple blockchains at this point. So that was a solution that you know blockchains couldn't natively provide in a secure manner, but through Chainlink VRF, now all these applications are able to be created. All these new NFTs can be fairly distributed that you know that they're legitimate, and you have things like uh, keepers where it's also using off-chain computation, but using it in a sense to enable the automation of smart contracts. So oracles can compute a part of a contract, determine if some function needs to be triggered, and then automatically send the transaction on-chain to make a transaction execute some state change. And so now smart contracts, by using Chainlink off-chain computation, can now be fully autonomous in that sense. And you know the off-chain computation is a major uh, uh, aspect of oracles that I think people don't necessarily understand in terms of like generalized oracles where it's not just data delivery, but it's off-chain compute and it's, you know, cross-chain interoperability. So that's kind of what's being created uh, with CCIP, cross-chain interoperability protocol, where blockchains are able to be connected together through kind of a secure middleware so they can exchange commands and data and tokens between each other. So these different collection of services all kind of... Uh, provide smart contract developers with the off-chain infrastructure that they require. And so it's not just price feeds. That's a great, you know, it's like a primary example of Chainlink. It's the initial use case of oracles, but really oracles provide anything that blockchains can't do on their own. And a lot of times that is off-chain computation where it could be done for much cheaper off-chain and you just verify it, verify the results of that computation on-chain or it's sending messages between chains. So there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different verticals that come out of chain like oracles. I kind of think of them as like generalized agents. They kind of, they provide the services that are in demand. And today that a lot of that is financial market data, but now we're seeing more and more as more advanced applications and as a multi the multi-chain ecosystem grows that the demand for oracles is becoming a lot more specialized. And because Chainlink is so flexible and it's kind of this you know framework for building oracles, it can serve every possible off-chain use case that a smart contract developer would require. So really oracles are kind of the substrate through which the on-chain and the off-chain world can interact with each other. And that's data delivery, but that's also these other unique forms of computation and interoperability. So that, that's kind of a, that's kind of my thesis on oracles is that it's much more than data delivery. That's That's what a lot of oracles focus on today, but it truly is a lot more than that. Right, yeah. And and from my eyes, it, it almost seems that of the multitude of services that Chainlink provides, knowing this space and seeing this space kind of grow and seeing some of these projects pop up, it almost seems that these each individual services could be in of itself their own protocol in some regard. But it's kind of comboed within the Chainlink product suite of offerings. Is that fair? I'll give you an example. Like, so for Keepers, um, I think there's another network. I think it's Gelato. Right. I, I believe that they're trying to create a protocol that focuses on um, 
triggering smart contracts, but Chainlink also offers the keeper automation within smart contracts. Is that is that correct? He may have got rubbed. Oh, uh, we may have we may have lost the LG. <laughs> All right, guys. Let's, let's, uh, let's give it a second try to see if we can get CLG back. No pop. He doesn't want break. us to post the alpha, bro. I, I thought CLG just didn't like the question, so I was like, all right, let me <laughs> let me reframe this question. <laughs> uh, that's great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there he goes. All right, guys, so give us uh, one. Oh, there he is. We can. Okay. Yeah, Sorry back. about that. I knew, I knew that would happen at some point. So, yeah, I, I got the full question. So, like, all these all okay, these different cool. services, they. A lot of the times we do see specific projects for specific services. I mean, I would say most oracles today are specifically just price feeds. They're still trying to get that use case down, even though Chainlink has already conquered the entire ecosystem. We see you know, specific keeper projects, specific interoperability projects, but because Chainlink kind of provides this universal secure substrate of nodes, and because these nodes are so generalized in their nature, they can perform any service that a user would require. And it kind of creates this network effect where if you're already using Chainlink for price feeds, and then you begin using it for verifiable randomness, then proof of reserve, and then keepers, and then you know CCIP. Like you're already using Chainlink, and your uh, Chainlink is securing your protocol. It's kind of a small step to also use Chainlink for these other services as well. So it's kind of this natural network effect. But because Chainlink's already been proven to secure you know tens of billions of dollars in price feeds then that security is kind of extended to these other services as well. So it's kind of, you kind of provide the most secure solution for price feeds, and then you, you know, create these other solutions that are backed by the same exact secure nodes that are already proven, already secure value. Now you can start bootstrapping these other services to add additional functionality to your smart contract. So we do see it kind of other projects specializing, but I would say that, you know, because Chainlink is a framework for building Oracle networks, those Oracle networks can provide any specific functionality you want while using the same proven, you know, secure nodes and the proven economics of the network. Gotcha. Okay. So you, you touched on um, the main different services, Keepers, VRF, the data marketplace, the proof of reserves, the market data feeds. Um, I do want to hop into cross-chain services because I find that extremely interesting. But before we do, I want to ask you, because I feel like this is kind of like a, a, also a new narrative that is popping up around Chainlink being an abstraction layer. Could you touch on what exactly that means for um, folks like myself who aren't super technical? What does it exactly mean for Chainlink to be an abstraction layer for the enterprise adoption that, that will occur over the next uh, five to 10 years? Yeah, sure thing. It's a, it's a good question. So effectively, like if you're an enterprise and you want to be you want to get into the blockchain ecosystem you have to basically uh, choose which chains that you want to implement with and your different counterparties may be on different blockchains so you know you have to expend a lot of resources a lot of time and energy integrating with each individual chain that your counterparty may be residing on and because blockchain developers are already incredibly uh, scarce within the crypto ecosystem and the enterprise ecosystem, it's probably even more so, even as things uh, increase in adoption. So kind of the thesis of Chainlink being an abstraction layer is rather than enterprises integrating with each individual blockchain themselves, they can integrate with Chainlink oracles once, whether that's like uh, existing Chainlink nodes or running their own Chainlink node, they're able to access every blockchain network through their Chainlink node. So it's like a, it's effectively like an abstraction layer. We don't have to deal with the underlying blockchains Rather, you just interface with the Chainlink node. And so 
that can kind of provide two different paths in terms of like, if you want to monetize your data sets, you know, if you're the associated press or your AccuWeather, then you can start selling your data sets to smart contracts across any supported blockchains effectively, just through a single chain link integration. Or uh, on the other side is if you want to, you know, read and write and just interact with smart contracts, you know, uh, digitize your backend and use it to create more trust minimized processes between businesses, then you can use Chainlink to effectively interact with your counterparty smart contracts on any blockchain network. So it's a, it's a lot more of a seamless solution and you're able to basically use Chainlink effectively as like a secure middleware to the entire crypto ecosystem. So that, that's kind of generally the thesis is of how a lot of enterprises uh, can be onboarded in a very easy and a very rapid manner effectively by decreasing all the complexity of, you know, uh, trying to pick a winner of a, of the blockchains, which is, you know, not going to be very realistic to do. Rather, you just choose one chain link integration and now you're basically future-proofed. Whatever blockchain has the greatest adoption or, you know, whatever blockchain your counterparty chooses, you'll already have support for it because it'll be integrated on chain link already. So that, that's kind of the thesis behind it. That's, that's amazing. Uh, so effectively it, it's it reduces the barrier to entry for for large enterprises to where they can go from a very short setup time of integrating with chainlink and they have a full product suite offering across the multitude of l1s or l2s that may be out there at the time so they no longer have to worry about weighing pros and cons of okay well maybe we want to launch on this chain versus that chain yeah exactly and and in terms of like other developers in the ecosystem if I want my smart contract to interact with that enterprise system, I know that, you know, it, I could just do it through Chainlink effectively. It's like a universal gateway. So it simplifies it for enterprise and it simplifies it for developers and does this in a way that's, you know, entirely future-proof. So enterprises don't have to hire 20 different blockchain devs, you know, some in Solidity, some in Rust, you know, all these different languages. You know, you just need one Chainlink integration. Do we lose CLG again? There we go. Bring it back up. I, I think it was at the very end of your thought. Okay. Um, yeah. It just like it ended very abruptly, so I, it, just, it sounded like you had dropped. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was kind of weird. When um, I hopped back on. I could hear myself still speaking. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, this is actually a really good segue into the next point that I want to talk about, which was cross-chain smart contract composability. Um, could, could you kind of touch on that and the potential that that has to shift the narrative for smart contract use cases? The, the example that I was kind of thinking about specifically is that you could interact with a smart contract that potentially uses the privacy of Rose, which is a, a L1 privacy change OASIS. And you could use the final, finality of Avalanche while utilizing the security of Ethereum. Am I thinking about that in the correct way? Um, if so, could you kind of expand on that? And if not, could you kind of correct how cross-chain smart contract composability would look like in the future? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. I think there's kind of two, to two different dynamics in that sense. You can basically take something that's a smart contract on a singular chain, split it up and kind of modularize it and use different blockchains for their different properties. So kind of like you said, you can use one blockchain for you know settlement and the custody of funds. You can use another for privacy, another for high-speed you know, trading, another one for high-speed payments. And then you can have it, you know, with an interoperability solution, all intercommunicate so that they all have like a shared state and it's all one application. And I think another dynamic to this as well is like you can have a smart contract application that lives on a single blockchain. Then you could have these gateway contracts 
on other blockchain networks that are connected to that main contract where if I'm on Solana and I want to interact with a contract on Avalanche, rather than bridging my funds over, I can interact with a gateway contract that communicates with the contract on the other blockchain. So if I want to stay on Solana, I can stay on Solana and just interact you know, through the, the traditional you know, wallet interfaces of Solana while I'm communicating with a contract that communicates to another application on another blockchain. So it's kind of like a gateway. I can deposit my assets from any blockchain into a smart contract application on any other blockchain. So kind of once you reach that point of smart contract or cross-chain smart contracts, it ultimately doesn't really matter what blockchain you're on. You won't even have to necessarily even know what blockchain you're on. You just interact with the, you know, the the desired gateway contract, and then you'll be able to interact with any application in the entire multi-chain ecosystem without actually leaving the blockchain that you're on. And that kind of leads to a lot more interesting ideas once you kind of have an interoperability solution with automation. You can have the bridge automatically yield farm across the whole ecosystem for you while you're still residing on a single blockchain yourself. So there's, I think there's like a huge wide design space for cross-chain smart contracts, both in like modular modularization and like these gateway contracts of like stay on the chain and interact with any other application. So I think it's a very, very exciting prospect that I don't know if it'll be fully realized this year, but uh, definitely within the coming years, this will become pretty standard. Whew. Wow. <laughs> that, that is incredibly based. As somebody who is a uh, bridgeor and plays around in many different ecosystems that has to kind of jump through all these different hoops to use all these different uh, layer ones and these various smart contracts, that's uh, from a user perspective, that's like music to my ears. Um, yeah, exactly. I feel like that's that's like the primary benefit. Like it, it's going to enable new use cases, but just in terms of like UX, you're not going to, you know, bridging has gotten better over the years. It's not as terrible as it was, but it's still, you know, friction. You need to kind of, you know, just kind of switch RPCs and switch the interfaces and kind of it's it's not very intuitive. But you know, ultimately, I think long term, all of that's going to be abstracted away, and you'll just use a single interface and you can interact with anything without even realize you're bridging across chains at all. It'll just, it'll just work. That's amazing. This, this also really kind of like makes me want to reevaluate my investment thesis on varying L1s. Uh, but that's not the point of this conversation, but that, that's an amazing piece of uh, info. Um, Yusu, did you want to hop in? Did you have something you want to add on that? No, I was just going to say it really is the glue to like the entire crypto ecosystem. It's incredible. Yeah, it's going it, it, to, I feel like I feel pretty strongly in that thesis. And I think that will ultimately be realized through Chainlink middleware. And I think a lot of people, they won't even necessarily realize it's happening because of Chainlink on the back end. But, you know, Chainlink nodes are going to be paid for those interactions on the back end. And that's ultimately kind of what matters. And, you know, in the end, the UX experience is not only going to be better than today, but it'll be better than Web2 entirely. You know, just a single private key and you can access the entire Web3 ecosystem without, you know, even caring about what chain you're on or, you know, what, what the complexities are on the back end. Yeah, it really, really just shows, like, how early we are in the development. Um, and we're all just so, so blessed to be here. It's just this is awesome. Yeah, I, I feel like we may have just got the answer 
to my next question based off your previous uh, response. But is there a chain link service that's not really talked about enough in your eyes? Um, you know, for example, is there just kind of a service that's not really discussed because it doesn't fit today's narratives that we have, but will be massive in the coming years? I think it kind of depends on if you're looking at the narratives in our community and looking at the narratives outside the Chainlink community. So I think outside the Chainlink community, I don't think people really talk about CCIP really all that much. Like there's a lot of different interoperability solutions. A lot of them are focused on, you know, just token bridging, you know, enabling different ways to bridge tokens, which is useful, but that's kind of, you know, just step one of what a bridge does. You know, once you're able to bridge uh, tokens and you can bridge commands, and you could just bridge data across chains so different contracts on different chains can stay in sync. You know, that's going to completely... <laughs> they're, try they're trying to stop the <laughs> alpha. <laughs> it's what it seemed like. <laughs> it's only you that's getting rugged, so it has to be... There's a, there's a direct correlation going on right Yeah, now. I, got, I got to get a new, new phone. This is, this is crazy. So, um, yeah, yeah, kind of as I was kind of diving into... Outside the ecosystem, CCIP is kind of slept on. You know, token bridging is great, but it could be really much more than that. And, you know, I think over time as CCIP launches and, you know, all these applications that are already used chain like for price feeds and for keepers and for VRF and proof reserve and all this start using CCIP, uh, things like the, the Celsius and things like Aave, I think that things will really be, it'll become clear how dominant CCIP and its capabilities are. And that's kind of outside the chain like ecosystem. I think within the Chainlink ecosystem, I think a lot of people are excited about CCIP is what I kind of see a lot. But I think one of the like underrated services, I suppose, would be, I think it would be Keepers. I think that without Keepers, it's kind of like a UX thing as well, where if you don't have some kind of automation solution, then everything becomes extremely manual and things become you know kind of fundamentally less secure in terms of liquidations. But when you have a decentralized Keeper solution that's, you know, extremely cost-effective, extremely secure, and extremely reliable, then you can automate a lot of different functions. And this, you know, extends beyond uh, just DeFi applications, but pretty much any smart contract application <laughs> has some need for automation because smart contracts on their own are basically asleep and need to be poked by someone like a keeper to execute some action. So I think as the ecosystem becomes more adopted, a lot of the frictions are going to be abstracted away through something like Chainlink Keepers, where all the interactions are effectively automated. So you don't have to worry about liquidations or limit orders or any kind of triggering of a contract. That's going to be computed by Chainlink nodes, automatically executed, and everything will kind of work intuitively as expected. So th those are kind of the two services. But I would say that CCIP, just in general as a whole, is kind of one that will have the probably the most impact out of any Chainlink service in terms of moving the space forward uh, from where it is today. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that day for the service to be like fully rolled out just from like a user perspective. Um, I did want to kind of like circle back to a comment that you had made earlier about a comment that Sergey made in the video, uh, but I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts a little bit more like flushed out on it. But wh what does it mean that some Chainlink networks are profitable or some node uh, decentralized Oracle networks, like node operators are profitable. What, what are the implications of that in your eyes? Yeah, uh, I think that that's, I think that was a pretty major thing that Sergey noted in his presentation. So effectively, when you kind of look at how Oracle networks are 
designed to work uh, from an economics perspective. It's effectively bootstrapped initially with a subsidy to basically lower the cost for end users. So that's, you know, if users had to pay the full cost from day one, it would be extremely expensive. Uh, but through the subsidy, you're able to lower the cost significantly, get a lot of users to start using the network, and each of those users are paying fees to use that network. So, you know, if there's 100 users who need the ETHUSD price, they're all funding, they're all providing their fees to the ETHUSD feed effectively. And so over time, as there's more and more users on that feed and the, the pool of user fees grow, effectively that reduces the need of a Oracle reward subsidy on that network. And so at this point, through the efficiency gains, through things like OCR and the deployment of Chainlink on higher speed blockchains, it's reached a point where there are certain feeds now that are run entirely on user fees. So there's no Oracle reward subsidy being uh, deployed on those networks. It's entirely running based on user fees and those kind of compensate all the costs of running that Oracle network, providing a profit that's not based on a Oracle reward, but based just on user fees. And kind of put that in perspective, when you're looking at blockchains, pretty much every blockchain today is, you know, it's subsidized. Even things like Bitcoin are well over 90% subsidized today in terms of you compare subsidy to user fees. You know, it's the, for the higher speed blockchains, it's even more so. You know, the only network that's kind of reaching a more balanced uh, uh, level between subsidy and user fees is Ethereum. But when you look at Oracle networks, we're kind of reaching that point where we already see Oracle networks just running basically on user fees alone. So I think that's incredibly important in terms of like the long-term sustainability. I think over time, we're going to see more and more chain like networks operating based just on the user fees that dApps are paying in link to node operators. And so that basically reduces the requirement of the Oracle reward subsidy for those networks. So I, th I think that's pretty significant in the, the long-term sustainability for chain like feeds. And it's, it's really a, it's really a validation of the economic system of Chainlink, where you know when you're able to subsidize early user costs to get a large network effect, then that network effect carries this network to long-term sustainability and profitability. So it's really a validation that the Chainlink economics are effectively working for networks, and it's kind of a large reason why Chainlink is, is running as widely used as it is. That's the hat nod from Sergey. We're ready. Um, CLG, just kind of to go back on CCIP, can we go over the cross-chain smart contract infrastructure stack? Because when I was looking at that, you know, obviously uh, I'm not as technical as others may be. But um, so, you know, we have the apps in the wallets, DeFi, CFI, PBDCs, uh, and then all the other interfaces. Oh, God, he rugged. <laughs> uh, I think he has the record for most rugged guests at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, at least it was at the end of me answering it. <laughs> How kind of Twitter. <laughs> Twitter said it. Um, yeah, so CLG, I just wanted to go over the uh, cross-chain <clears throat> smart contract uh, infrastructure stack because I know there's a lot of people listening that are not as technical as uh, others are. Can we go over that and just kind of how there's multiple layers to it? So you've got your apps and your wallets, your DeFi, CFI enterprise CBDCs and all other interfaces kind of where everybody just interacts with. And then under is more of where the, the technology is, you know, the programmable token bridge, cross-chain bridges, cross-chain dApps, and then CCIP, and then uh, obviously the DONs, uh, and also the anti-fraud network, just kind of how that all works together and why it's important. 
Yeah, sure thing. So this is kind of like a this is like an infographic that was on the the CCIP announcement. So uh, effectively, kind of if you think of it as like an infrastructure layer stack, at, at the very bottom, you basically have the underlying Chainlink nodes. So those Chainlink nodes are running the off-chain reporting protocol 2.0, which is uh, basically like a generalization of the existing OCR for price feeds. And so that's the same highly secure, highly reliable node set that's already securing you know, over 75 billion in price feeds. And so those are the nodes that are achieving consensus um, on different data sets and in this context on cross-chain transactions. And so above that, you have the cross-chain interoperability protocol, the CCIP. And so that's effectively like the messaging layer and kind of uh, like a TLDR is like CCIP is effectively a cross-chain communication protocol. So it can send any type of data package across chains. And so that data package can consist of anything. And so this is like just a generalized messaging protocol between chains. On its own, CCIP doesn't actually bridge tokens. It just bridges like data blobs effectively. And so once you have this substrate of these highly secure nodes coming to consensus on uh, uh, like requests for cross-chain uh, data passes, data uh, packages, then you have CCIP, which is kind of the facilitation of, you know, how does a data package get from a smart contract of one chain to one on another? Once you have that secure substrate, then on top you can build things like a programmable token bridge, which is like a, a bridge where you can send tokens, but then you can also send commands along with those tokens. So, you know, you could bridge tokens and then have it be allocated to one protocol to earn yield and then have it shift to another protocol to be collateralized and alone and kind of do these different interactions for you. And on top of CCIP, it's not just one token bridge, but any protocol or any dApp can build their own kind of token bridge as well. And they can have their own specification on how that's done specifically, but it's still those cross-chain messages facilitating this is still secured by CCIP and ultimately secured by the Chainlink nodes. And in addition to bridges, because you can pass any kind of data, you can generate, you can pass, uh, you can pass commands between uh, contracts on different blockchains, which compose together to create one decentralized application that's kind of split across. So that's kind of like the, the modular smart contract, the cross-chain smart contracts. And on top of that is basically uh, mostly the same, where you have you know, the, your traditional apps, you have your uh, crypto wallets, you have your DeFi and CeFi applications, where you interact with these smart contracts exactly the same, but underneath you know, the cross-chain interaction is being facilitated by CCIP. And you know, enterprises, enterprise systems can use this as well you know, to facilitate greater interoperability and connection to any blockchain network they need to interact with. If they need to read and write to different blockchains, they can use CCIP to kind of facilitate that as well. And as well as if and when uh, central bank digital currencies become a thing and if they're on blockchain networks, then you know, CBDCs will likely be on their own proprietary networks and CCIP can facilitate the bridging of those uh, of those uh, central bank digital currencies into other blockchain environments. So, you know, depending on how widely adopted CBDCs are and exactly how it's adopted, then that will be a significant amount of liquidity that will be bridged into the traditional Web3 and the DeFi ecosystem. You know, stablecoins are already extremely well used, over $100 billion worth of USD stablecoins, but once and if... <laughs> there are a CBDC, then that will have, you know, likely trillions of dollars of liquidity. And 
that can be bridged into the DeFi and CeFi ecosystem and just the general blockchain Web3 ecosystem through CCIP and across any blockchain network. So ultimately, CCIP uh, in, in this stack is effectively all the way down secured by Chainlink nodes. But in addition to that, there's also the anti-fraud network, which is a, an independent Oracle network that basically monitors the nodes running CCIP to detect for any malicious activity if there's a large surge in tokens being moved or if there's any corrupted messages that are waiting to be passed over, then the anti-fraud network can pause operations um, before any kind of, uh, basically to mitigate any cascading issues that come over. So it's not just the Chainlink nodes in CCIP, but this independent anti-fraud DAWN network, which monitors the CCIP nodes for any activity. So it's kind of like a checks and balances system. So all of this kind of interoperates together effectively to enable these much more advanced cross-chain smart contracts and just facilitate. Did he get rugged? Yep. Yeah. I love our little microphone like tag thing that we just kind of like mute on mute. <laughs> like, as a signal, like, is that happening for you guys? Um, just getting back up here. Look for it. Yeah, dude, Chainlink really is just the God protocol. It does everything. Everything you could ever imagine. <clears throat> yeah, I think CC- you, CCP is going to be uh, a complete game changer in that regard. Price speeds are great, but <laughs> once we have a smart, a cross-chain smart contract ecosystem, then people will see the true power of generalized oracles. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I haven't been around in, I guess, like traditional markets and really even crypto markets that long, but I feel like it's almost like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity you find a a company or a protocol that's doing this much work for an ecosystem and is doing it this well so i i I appreciate the ccip breakdown um but yeah Chainlink is just it's mind-blowing what they're doing and uh how early we are to it also real parole asks if there's only one ccp that exists uh ccip my bad uh can't this lead to fallacies in one entity impacting the entire ecosystem somehow so that was a uh, community question. Gotcha. I mean, that's kind of like saying, is having one internet an issue or like one Ethereum? Like it's not, it's not one entity, it's a decentralized network. So in that sense, you're not trusting any one entity and there's not a single entity who kind of controls it, but inherently on its own, it is a decentralized network. So it's not like a kind of a company running CCIP and bridging messages, but it's a collection of independent nodes that are incentivized and are, you know, the, the highest reputation, the highest security and the most proven nodes in the Chainlink network kind of bridging these messages and these uh, operations across blockchains. So I don't think that that's necessarily a risk. I mean, CCP definitely has to be well secured and we'll kind of see more of the technical aspects as it kind of comes, uh, starts to roll out this year. But I, I think looking at CCIP as like a single entity isn't necessarily the right way to kind of look at it because no decentralized network is really a, a single entity per se. I think real Parath's in here. So Parath, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of want to touch on staking again, uh, CLG. Um, I, don't, I don't believe we've clearly like defined like for the audience, like what staking is um, and why it's so important to Chainlink success. Could you, could you dive into like what, what's the definition behind staking and um, you know, why is it so essential for, for Chainlink? Yeah, so staking or is also known as like explicit staking is effectively 
uh, an additional form of crypto economic security that's being developed for the Chainlink network. So staking effectively involves link tokens being locked up in a service agreement uh, to back the services of Chainlink nodes. So if those Chainlink nodes are honest, then they get paid fees and they continue the operation of the network. And if those nodes are proven to be dishonest or malicious, then their staked collateral ends up getting slashed and given to the person who pointed out the fraud that happened. So it's basically a disincentive to not act malicious as any malicious entity would have their link tokens and their stake effectively taken away from them. And so that's something that's kind of been in development for a little while. And that's something that Sergey announced in his presentation that a initial implementation of staking would be deployed uh, in this coming year. And so that'll effectively provide a way to increase the security of Chainlink services and also kind of provide additional uh, demand for the token as well, where Link has to be locked up to back these services effectively, taking them out of the circulating supply. So there's a lot of reasons why people are excited about uh, staking, but it kind of predominantly comes down to those reasons effectively. But the overarching goal is increasing the security of Chainlink networks so that they can safely secure greater and greater amounts of value. So it's in a way, it's kind of like a scalability solution in terms of scaling the amount of value that Chainlink networks can uh, can secure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know, I know. In the video he said like initial um, as like the word. Do you do you foresee in the future that's possible that staking could actually like the way that staking is operating or the returns could um, be updated in the future depending on what that, what they're seeing in the network or the response from the community. Yeah, I mean, I think it's likely. I think there's still more details to come out. I'm sure about like how exactly this initial form is going to look out, uh, going to look like. I think it'll probably rolled out in kind of a step-by-step -step fashion, most likely. So kind of across different services at different times and the rewards and the, the yield and the different like optimization for how much stake needs to be deposited will probably be fine-tuned over time. But uh, I, I imagine it'll be kind of like this step-by-step -step process. And so it'll be, it'll be continually refined over time. Yeah, that's, that's how I was envisioning it as well. Um, could you also touch on how uh, diminishing returns can be addressed uh, for the node operators? And kind of a follow-up to that is, how do you see that affecting demand uh, for the link token? Yeah, so kind of what I got from the presentation in terms of like what diminishing returns is in this context is, you know, when nodes are aiming to increase their security and reliability in order to get added to more and more networks and generate more revenue, they effectively have like traditional IT strategies in terms of like having uh, redundancies and having, you know, lockdown access control and in terms of having monitoring software and like you can add on these components to make your node more and more reliable and resistant to attacks. And that helps increase the security and therefore uh, increases the opportunity for you to earn additional fees by getting added to more networks. But at a certain point, you've created a node that's so reliable and so secure against external entities that like any additional mechanism of any like traditional IT infrastructure mechanism you add is going to be more expensive than the actual gains you get from security effectively. So what staking effectively... Yeah, right. Yeah. Dude. They don't want the alpha to come out. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the new Twitter uh, CEO, Parag? Get him in there. 
It was keeping track of how many times CLG gets rugged. <laughs> I think that was five or six. Yeah, I think there's a memory leak. I can see it. I can see the app like slowing down and then it just crashes. Uh, fucking Twitter. Okay. So effectively, um, in terms of like diminishing returns, like there's only so far you can go with traditional IT strategies to increase the security of a node. And, you know, there's other, other ways to kind of increase your chance to get more revenue in terms of having like a reputation system, you know, showing that you've been reliable and you've been secure over the past year and you've delivered accurate on-time responses, but kind of breaking past that diminishing return, yeah, that's basically where staking comes into play, where in addition to all the traditional IT management uh, best practices and best security practices is effectively locking up link as collateral that can be slashed if you're dishonest. So it's kind of breaking past that diminishing return where the more and more link that you have staked on your node backing your services, that basically makes you a superior node and more likely to be chosen by users to specific Oracle networks, therefore increasing the opportunity for you to earn additional fees in the future. So in that regard, that's kind of how you break past the diminishing return. And that what that means is like once you have once once you once the network reaches a point where every node has like 99.999 repeating percentage uptime and is all secure and all these nodes basically from a traditional IT perspective look extremely secure, you know, how do you choose which nodes you want in your network effectively? And that ultimately will come down to how much stake does the nodes offer. And so the nodes that offer the greatest amount of stake therefore have the greatest amount of like skin in the game, all else equal being a highly reliable node, meaning node operators are competing against one another in terms of how much stake they can offer jobs. So the nodes that can offer the greatest amount of stake collateral, all else being equal, is more likely to earn greater fees by being added to more networks. So that's kind of where the impact comes on the token, where as Chainlink grows and as there's more user fees coming in and there's more demand from all across all these different services, nodes will be competing for that fee revenue by staking more link or you know, borrowing link from you know, staking pools or from end users so they can offer more staked collateral. And so that's how, kind of how they break past this plateau where every node basically looks equal. So now they're competing on another dynamic in terms of how much stake they have. And you know, when you have more stake, stake link locked up, you have much less link in the circulating supply, essentially. And so now user fees have to be acquired from this shrinking circulating supply. And so that's basically how you get you know, increased demand, shrinking supply. And so that's basically exactly what you want for a, a token in the long term. Yeah, I actually think that this is a good segue uh, to one of our community questions. Pink Julian asks, is staking the sole driver of withdrawing supply from circulation? Um, and he also says, does the frequency uh, function, does the, free, does the free currency function accrue value to the token at all? Um, and he's also asking, is staking just for node operators or can end users also stake their link? Yeah, so that's kind of a couple different ones. I would say that in terms of Chainlink, it's like a two-sided marketplace. So you have users who have basically inelastic demand where they always need link to pay for the services so they can keep their contracts running. And so that effectively is kind of a buy pressure on link in order so they can fund you know, their contracts. And then you have the other side where the node operators are also either acquiring link or using the link that they earn from the fee revenue to lock up. And so effectively, it's both effectively. You know, if you kind of look at how Ethereum has evolved over time, 
you know, for the first four or five years of the network, it was effectively, you know, the valuation was basically users acquiring ETH to pay uh, for access for block space, effectively to access smart contracts and their services. And then staking comes along and that also introduces, you know, a dynamic of where network participants also have to lock up their tokens to provide those services. And so in that regard, it's kind of a, a little bit of that analogous situation in terms of like the more demand for Chainlink services, the more link users have to acquire to pay for those services. And the more that nodes are competing to acquire that growing fee pool, which comes from competing on how much link, how much staked link that they can offer. So it's kind of a, both sides of the ecosystem fuel each other effectively. Nodes want more links so they can get more fees. And the users want, uh, are paying for these services because the nodes have so much links uh, locked up effectively. And so when it kind of comes to staking, um, effectively staking comes down to the security of nodes. And so that's kind of primarily how staking is designed around where you're not staking to like the protocol itself, but you're staking to a single, a specific node. So node operators can uh, stake link to back their services, but it's likely with like staking pools, they can pool and basically borrow link from other token holders so they can collateralize their own jobs and then kind of forward the yield to those, uh, those lenders and those pooled stakers. So ultimately from like a protocol perspective, it's node operators staking their link but those node operators can acquire that link, you know, through the market by borrowing those tokens and then passing on the yield to the lenders. Like there's different aspects and I'm sure, you know, we see things like link pool and their solution. I'm sure many different node operators will have their different solution in which will basically allow end users to effectively uh, stake their link. So that's something I think we'll kind of see. No, the rug. Oh man. <clears throat> I yep. think CLG's Twitter is having diminishing returns right now. <laughs> Jeez. it's always such a quick request like they're just trolling us there we go all right we got you back no worries we, we at least we didn't we heard most of it clg so yeah i think i think i was like that was mostly the gist of it effectively <laughs> uh linky bags asks, uh do you have a rough estimate on how much it costs overall to subsidize a node I mean, there's not exactly like a definitive number because it depends on a large number of variables effectively. Like it depends on how many feeds that a node is uh, participating in. It depends on whether those feeds are on, you know, uh, a blockchain with uh, extreme, like a extremely high gas fees or if it's extremely cheaply. It depends on how, uh, how often that those data feeds they support are updating, how much they post to Oracle updates. It depends on how much user fees there are for each network. So it, it basically, there's not like a definitive answer, but it depends upon a bunch of different variables. But effectively, as blockchains are able to scale up and lower fees, and as more users join the network and the full, uh, P, fee pool continues to grow, then these networks and these nodes, uh, by a product of that, are able to become more profitable and they don't need as much Oracle reward subsidy. So effectively, that kind of comes with adoption over time. But it really depends on a case-by-case -case basis and it kind of fluctuates over time depending on demand and depending on the you know the gas costs of the underlying blockchain so there's not necessarily like a single number there got it that, that makes a lot of sense uh linky bags hope that answers your question um chase super i have uh, uh some community questions but before we go into those 
Did you guys have anything else you want to cover in terms of staking or CCIP? Because uh, these committee questions are, can be a little random. No, we, uh, yeah, no, I, I hit uh, a lot of my questions already on, but, you know, if anything pops up, I'll just maybe just hop in in between, in between the questions. But I'll say go for it. Rapid fire the committee questions. Yeah, plus one to that. All right, let's do it. Um, we have an anonymous, anonymous question first. Uh, can you explain how Chainlink stays decentralized while utilizing off-chain computations? Yeah, that one's kind of nuanced. I mean, for a lot of the time, it's it's very similar to how it already works, like in blockchain networks. Blockchains are able to perform computation and stay decentralized. And in terms of Chainlink providing off-chain computation, then you know it really depends on what computation is being performed. A lot of the time, the computation is entirely verifiable on chain. So decentralization in terms of security matters a lot less than something like uh, price feeds, which can't necessarily be directly verified on chain. So if there's a cryptographic proof, then it's um, effectively you can have it so it's not as decentralized, but it's just as secure. And if it's something, you know, in terms of like where liveness really matters, then, you know, you can have something like keepers where you kind of have like a rotating uh, node selection where these different chain link nodes are executing different contracts and then they kind of switch positions and start executing different contracts. So even if one node fails, then the next node will come and compute the contract and see if it needs to be triggered. And if it's something like executing layer two contracts or layer two networks, then effectively it's kind of the same sequence of every node processing transactions, then submitting fraud proofs as needed. So in this case, it's also kind of on a case by case basis, but the same way that price feeds are decentralized, the same way a lot of off-chain compute services can also be decentralized. Awesome. I hope that answered that individual's question. Uh, moving on to Lisa, Lisa Rodriguez. Um, they ask, what are first-party oracles versus third-party oracles, and why do providers choose each, and where does Chainlink fit in to the equation? Yeah, that's a great question. I hope I don't get <laughs> rugged during this one. But effectively, first-party first oracles can be thought of as basically data providers running the Oracle node themselves and delivering the data on-chain and getting paid for that. While third-party Oracle nodes are more like they're run by DevOps and they're run by enterprises, and they basically fetch data from data providers and then deliver it on-chain uh, uh, themselves. So there's kind of there, there's advantages to both models, actually, in terms of when you have these DevOps and enterprise-operated Chainlink nodes, which is coming commonly referred to as third-party, those nodes are backwards compatible with every data source in the world. So they can deliver any data source, they can deliver any off-chain computation, cross-chain interaction, you know, any piece of data that you need, they can deliver it. So that provides a great amount of data diversity. And on the data provider front, they don't have to change anything about their infrastructure. You know, they're just basically selling access to their API to another client effectively, being the Oracle nodes. So that's an extremely fast way for data providers to begin monetizing the blockchain ecosystem by selling their data to existing Oracle nodes. In terms of first party Oracles, data providers who want to provide greater security and want to generate greater revenue can launch their own Chainlink node. Sorry, I thought it was going to crash. They can launch their own Chainlink node and effectively deliver the data directly on chain themselves. And so what a lot of data providers can kind of do is first sell their data to existing Chainlink nodes. I think you got oh, right, no. brother. Yep. 
teased him with a rug and rugged him. <laughs> it's a fake out this time. <laughs> oh, man. Dodging the bullet through the Matrix. <laughs> like Neo. <clears throat> you, you know there's some true alpha being spread whenever this doesn't really stop people from leaving. I feel like a lot of people be like, all right, like I'm out. <laughs> but there's there's just there's there's just too much alpha. There's and there's just too much alpha in this. <laughs> they couldn't let that happen. <laughs> okay, on a on, on the first party data provider oracles, basically, data providers are able to directly deliver the data on chain themselves, and they can cryptographically sign the data that they deliver on chain, so that smart contracts can prove that it actually came from a specific source. So, an oracle network like Chainlink specifically is designed to support both third-party and first-party oracles to provide the greatest amount of data diversity so that data could be delivered from any data source in the world while providing data, data providers the path to operate their own oracle node, generate greater revenue, and provide greater security. So in terms of you know an oracle protocol, if you just want to support one or the other, then you're kind of missing an area of the market effectively. And through Chainlink, it basically provides a path for providing any data in the world, then providing a path for those data providers to be directly onboarded and generate revenue to, uh, more directly, like paid and link, and be able to cryptographically sign their data. So supporting both of these nodes or both types of these nodes is incredibly crucial. And that's something that Chainlink already does today. So there's a lot of enterprise and DevOps nodes running price feeds and keepers, you know, fetching data from a ton of different off-chain data providers and data aggregators and delivering that on-chain. And there's already a bunch of first-party data providers like the Associated Press and AccuWeather and a lot of other uh, market data providers, a lot of different weather data providers, you know, all, all these different selections of data. We see more and more of traditional data providing firms launching Chainlink nodes on the Chainlink network because there's already a huge pool of users using Chainlink oracles in, like in terms of price feeds because there's a large amount of data diversity. So both of these types of nodes effectively feed into each other, where the adoption of one feeds into the adoption of the other, while providing the greatest data diversity and a path for data providers to be more directly onboarded to the network. So this is kind of a more of like a nuanced topic, but I think it's kind of a, an important one that kind of gets lost in the noise of like one's better than the other. Really, you need both. I love that. So, I definitely, definitely just learned something. Jay, see you, see you raising your hand. Yeah, I, I had another uh, community question that was uh, messaged to me. I just wanted to squeeze in real quick. Uh, CLG, they were wondering if you could touch on the recent advisors that joined Chainlink team. Uh, to put it bluntly, why a billionaire like Eric Schmidt decided to join the team? Just, uh, I think they just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts around that and see if you had like any kind of thoughts or input around that. Yeah, I mean, I can't like I can't speak on their behalf, but I can kind of give my perspective and sense of like these, you know, th these people have scaled up, you know, multi-billion dollar companies and they want to help not only, you know, scale up technologies that are going to make the world effectively a more fair and more trustless environment, but they're specifically, you know, they're not going to help a project that's on its hind legs and it's already kind of losing and it's not, doesn't really have much market share, but Chainlink is clearly already the market leader in oracles and in terms of the services it provides, but scaling up both Chainlink Labs as like an operation and just the general Chainlink ecosystem as a whole, you know, that requires a lot of expertise to be done. And these people have like, uh, like Eric Schmidt and uh, Jeff Weiner have already kind of scaled up these 
major, major companies and leveraging their expertise, whether you agree with them on you know, all of their opinions or not, they are very successful businessmen within the Web2 sphere. And Web2 and Web3 have a lot of differences, but in terms of organizations, there's a lot of similarities in that sense of how do you scale up an operation? How do you scale up to a global level, you know, beyond the crypto sphere into traditional sphere while retaining the qualities that actually make the product and the services matter? So, you know, I can't speak on their behalf of why they specifically did, but I can say that as the clear market leader and as a technology that's already proven to work, that I'm sure they saw a lot of the signs of how Chainlink is already making the smart contract and blockchain ecosystem superior, and they likely see how that can be applied to larger industries, insurance, you know, uh, uh, traditional finance, how it can introduce the properties we know and love today into greater ecosystems, which requires a, a strong team in order to do that. That's kind of my perspective. Very base. Thanks for the community question, Chase. Um, <laughs> the original JLo asks, uh, what can we do to help data providers who want to offer their services to Chainlink, i.e. help them get, uh, for them to get up and running as quick as possible? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it, it, is, it is interesting. I, I, think, I think it depends on what stage they're at. Like one, they need to understand why smart contracts matter, why they need data, and you know what, what's the growth potential of smart contracts? Like, why should they enter this market in the first place effectively? So kind of pointing out the benefits of DeFi, I guess it really depends on what data is you want to bring on chain, but kind of highlighting the growth of the smart contract and Web3 ecosystem, how that can benefit the world, and then basically highlighting the existing Oracle networks in their... Um, <laughs> I think ZLG needs to restart his app. <laughs> Force code. <laughs> yeah, effectively, it, yeah, it, it depends on what stage they're in. You need to convince them that smart contracts actually matter, then show them the opportunity of, hey, you know, if you launch this Oracle node, then you can generate greater amounts of revenue. You know, this is an entirely new market that, you know, 10 years ago basically didn't exist. And if you're able to get on the ground floor early, build a reputation, then, you know, you can seed the data to smart contracts that may be ultimately multi-trillion dollar contracts, and they're paying you for that data to run their contracts effectively. So really, it's getting the point across of the opportunity, and then actually getting them onboarded in terms of getting them connected to like uh, Chainlink Labs and Market.Link and these other ecosystem companies that can kind of basically expedite the price, the process and kind of help them get onboarded. They could certainly, you know, go it alone and launch their own node, but it's always helpful to kind of have the Oracle experts on their side. Awesome. Thank you so much. The original JLo, appreciate the question. Uh, I have a question from Hotelcoin. Could UFCLG explain how Chainlink solves MEV, uh, minor extractable value with VF, with FSS? sequencing service yeah so this is something that uh ari jules uh kind of talked about in the previous uh, SmartCon event effectively how fair sequencing services approaches minor extractable value uh is in terms of kind of two different approaches and kind of provides some uh, just some context mev or minor extractable value is effectively the value that miners, validators, sequencers can extract 
by their ability to arbitrarily reorder, include, or exclude transactions. So you know, that could be things that are good, like arbitrage and liquidations, or things that are bad and harmful, like front-running and sandwich attacking. So what FSS is aiming to do is basically minimize the opportunity to do things like front-running and sandwich attacking, which objectively is pretty harmful for users. And so at a high level, basically users encrypt their transaction, send it to a chain link network, which then uh, basically the chain link network can't see what the transactions are. Then they order them according to a predefined uh, notion of fairness, like first in, first out. Then those transactions are ordered. Then that's kind of that ordering is finalized. Then they're unencrypted and then they're executed by the blockchain network or a smart contract. So that's kind of the high level in terms of if the transactions are encrypted, then you know you can't really front run what you can't see. You don't know what the transactions are. And then when you have you know this decentralized consensus of ordering, then you have even more order fairness in terms of uh, transactions are executed as they come in effectively. And so even if the, uh, uh, the community doesn't follow the first in and first out, the transactions are still encrypted. So it's kind of like a uh, belt and suspenders type approach. So that's something that uh, Arbitrum has talked about implementing for the, their layer two rollups. And I'm sure there'll be other blockchains, other L2s, other smart contracts that will use this approach. But it's basically minimizing the harmful effects of MEV. It's not necessarily, necessarily getting rid of MEV. That's not necessarily entirely possible or desirable, but it's minimizing the harmful forms of MEV that we don't want, like front running and sandwich attacking. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for that explanation. Um, Russia Bot 14 asks, how much value do you expect the link token to capture on average from a given project that it secures? He's looking for a percent. I actually get a lot of people that DM me this. I'm curious to hear your thoughts around it. Yeah, this one's more nuanced because I feel like I've said this a lot, but like there isn't like a definitive number, really. It depends on a number of variables, like in terms of if you have an application that's securing a lot of value, but doesn't have that much revenue versus one that has a lot of revenue, but doesn't secure that much value, it's going to be different percentages, right? And I think that in the same way of, you know, how do blockchains kind of accrue value, specifically in terms of like ETH with transaction fee burning, you know, it doesn't necessarily scale with the value of the, the transaction, but it does in terms of how many, uh, how many applications there are and how many transactions there are. And it's a little bit different in Chainlink, but I think the value capture will be kind of in the same way where it's not necessarily how much value is captured from a specific protocol, but how much value is captured from the ecosystem as a whole effectively. And I think that's kind of ultimately the, you know, kind of why so many integrations matter is that when you're casting a wider net, then you have a greater opportunity to generate more fees. And, you know, if you support all these projects in their early days, maybe 90% of them fail and become nothing. But, you know, the small 10% or 1% that succeed may become multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar applications that have billions running through them a day and millions in fees being generated. Then even a portion of that, you know, uh, can flow into the Chainlink network, funding the networks that support that application. So... That's kind of why Chainlink casts such a wide net of supporting literally like every project is because you know they're not picking winners. They're going to support every project, and as those projects grow, the amount of fees that they'll pay if they're successful will scale up with their like their total value secured and what they actually use the services for as well. Because it's 
is nuanced there as well, effectively, if you're using, you know, price feeds to secure loans or you're using keepers to harvest yield, that's going to be, it's going to be different. So as usual, it's kind of nuanced, but the goal is casting a wide net across many applications. That's super based. So what you're saying is 1 million uh, end of year to answer your question. 1 million <laughs> integrations. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, super, I, know, I know Socknug asked something if you want to. Yeah, so um, Dr. Dunk had also asked about fair sequencing services, but you had just uh, gone over that. His second question was, why isn't um, VRF on Solana yet? He says he's going to create a competitor if they don't hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, when you look at the path of how Chainlink services are launched, they're kind of launched by demand. So most of the time it's price feeds, then it's VRF, and then it's keepers. So, you know, we see VRF and keepers on Ethereum, Polygon, and BSC. It's relatively easy to launch those services on like an EVM type chain, EVM compatibility. I mean, it still has to be audited. It still has to be tested. Each integration of a new service of, of a new chain link service on a new chain, you know, it's not just deploy it and boom, you're done. Like you got to do testing. You got to audit it. You got to refine it. Like you got to make sure it works because every chain is slightly different and can have unintended consequences. So it might take a little bit longer, but security is always, always, always better than just being really fast at integrations effectively. And so, and when it comes to Solana, Solana doesn't necessarily, Solana itself doesn't necessarily have solidity, but it's, you know, contracts written in Rust, meaning you can't just deploy VRF as is. You need to rewrite the contracts. So, you know, for price feeds, that's taken a while. For VRF, I'm sure that would be the next service next. I know that there's, a, I think it's called Neon, bringing solidity to Solana. So potentially maybe VRF could be deployed there and then bridged kind of two other Solana contracts. I'm not sure if that's kind of the approach taking, but that's one approach that could be taken. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, have, a, have a timeline on VRF on Solana, but I would say after price feeds are deployed on Solana, VRF would probably be the, 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 next, the next step for sure. Perfect. I think that, answer, yeah, he's given a 100. Chase, you had a... Uh... Uh... Yeah, I got uh, one more community question before I think we jump over to some of the uh, less Chainlink related, more fun questions. Um, COG, are we good on your time right now? We so happy for a little bit more. You got a time for a few more. Okay, cool. Uh, so we had a question around uh, the process of starting and running your own link node. And how would you go about getting the okay from Chainlink to run your own node? That's uh, another community question. Yeah, so in, in Chainlink, running a node in of itself is entirely permissionless. So I can spin up a Chainlink node and start delivering any data that I want on chain. But in terms of what I think the question is getting after is like, how do you get added to networks like the Chainlink price feeds and those kind of uh, those networks kind of managed by the Chainlink Labs team today? Effectively, uh, in that sense, it's it's you need to be able to prove the extreme amount of reliability and security of the nodes because the nodes running price feeds are securing a tremendous amount of value. And so as much as everyone wants to run a node and contribute to the network, just like people love to do that with blockchains, oracles are just not blockchains. There's a lot, a lot of other variables that need to be taken into account in terms of you know, data quality, in terms of reliability. You know, if a single block, if a few blockchain nodes go down, the network is relatively fine, but the dynamic is kind of different for oracles because there's a lot of different types of attack vectors. So 
what I kind of foresee as the Chainlink network evolves is I think things will become a lot more kind of, we'll see a lot more custom Oracle networks. I think there'll be kind of frameworks that will make it a lot easier for projects to build custom Oracle networks. We already kind of see projects doing this today, uh, but I think in the future, particularly with things like computation where it's a lot more deterministic, like either you did it or you didn't do it, I think these more community-operated nodes and these other a collection of nodes I think will become more prevalent in the network. So today it's kind of a large focus on security. And then as things scale up, that's kind of when things will decentralize, but you can't compromise on security when doing that. So it's kind of nuanced, but I think over time, things will kind of, as the network scales up, things will be kind of opened up more and running a node you know, is always possible, but I think it'll become a lot more realistic for a lot of people in terms of uh, contributing to a lot of these networks that are more deterministic, more off-chain computation-based. So I think there's definitely a path forward for onboarding a lot more nodes to the network. Let's go. I appreciate you, CLG, <laughs> doing us a huge data dump for like the past hour and a half. It's, it's been great. Let's, let's do like three, three bonus questions that some of the community uh, submitted. They might, they might get a crack or a laugh out of it. Um, Chainlink Oracle asks, would you rather visit Mars or the, or the forbidden zone of Antarctica? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I mean, like if, if I would go to Mars today, like what would be there, right? Like would I even have a suit? Like there's nowhere to go. I'd probably just die within like a week. So I'm probably not that great. But if the forbidden zones of Antarctica, if that's real, then... I don't know. I mean, at least I could breathe there. So that seems that seems more like a viable route, much more to explore than just like getting there and dying instantly is is, is my take. We'll set up an expedition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Got to come with us. Uh, oh, this is a fun one. Uh, Bats by Blocks asks, what is your favorite town in old school RuneScape? Mm, that's a good one. For some reason, when I played as a kid, I would always chill in Drainer Village. I, I don't know why. There's like, there's fucking nothing there. But I, I would say Varrock is like, that's like the OG one. I mean, you have the Grand Exchange. You have two banks. Like, you have the wilderness right there. You, it's like a, it's like a central hub. Like, that, that's one you just can't go wrong with. I feel like that's like if I, if I lived in in the metaverse of RuneScape, I'd probably be chilling right next to Varrock East Bank. That's probably probably be where I'd be. Let's go. Yeah, that's that's definitely the hopping spot. I remember the old days, all the automated for sale messages and stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Link Arski, sorry if I'm butchering that, <laughs> asks, uh, Windows or iOS? I, I'm guessing it's it's Windows or Mac OS. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone uses a Windows phone, but I, 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 use, I use Windows, I use Mac, I use Linux. I kind of have a I have the whole whole shebang. I personally, I personally prefer Windows more, just because that's like what I'm used to. Kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of a bias there, I guess. But I, you know, I think each one has its own defined purpose. But if I had to choose just one, I'd probably say Windows, just because that's what I prefer. But really depends on what I'm doing in terms of like Android or iOS. I mean, I've been using Android now, and it's just been shooting on me <laughs> during this Twitter Spaces call. So I don't know. Maybe I'll hop over. We'll have to. We'll have to see there. Something's got to change. <laughs> I'm going to send you an Apple referral code. 
That'd be perfect, honestly. <laughs> oh, man. I think that's a wrap, CLG. Uh, this has been a crazy episode. I know there's a lot of content <laughs> to digest uh, through this. So I'll definitely be taking another look at the recording. Um, any, any kind of final thoughts, I guess, like you want to leave us with? Yeah, I would say that's a... Uh... If you haven't already, I would definitely check out Sergey's presentation, the the future of Chainlink 2022 presentation. I mean, it's it's a little long, but it's it's jam packed full of information. And as well, I would also look at the the year in 2021 recap blog post on the Chainlink blog as well. But uh, just in general, I want to say thanks for thanks for you guys for for putting this together, kind of hosting this, letting me spill the alpha here and there before I cut cut in and out. And thanks for everybody here for, for tuning in and listening and kind of just listening to me ramble about different different chain link topics. It's a, uh, you know, I write a different lot of different blogs, podcasts, a lot of different tweets, shitposting here and there. But I always appreciate when I can, you know, kind of just speak directly and kind of share the alpha directly. And I tremendously, gratefully uh, appreciate all of the support that people uh, provide, that, you know, people listening to me and, and appreciate kind of what I've been tweeting, you know, it, if you DM me giving me thanks, then like, even if I don't respond, because I get a lot of DMs, but like, I do appreciate each and every one of you. So uh, thanks, everyone. Absolutely. And we, we appreciate you, uh, CLG. Where where can people find you on your, your podcast, um, Spotify, your, you guys Substack, or where, where do you guys publish content? Yeah, so I have a, uh, on Spotify, it's just Chainlink God Podcast. I think it's it's on a bunch of other platforms as well, but uh, primarily track Spotify. That's what a spot, uh, podcast is with the Crypto Oracle. And then I also have uh, smart content on Medium, which I also write with the Crypto Oracle, um, which has a bunch of different breakdowns of different topics in the Chainlink ecosystem. But uh, smart content on Medium and then Chainlink God podcast on Spotify. Those are the definitely the go-to. That's awesome. And um, I can attest to the value, which I'm sure if you guys are tuning in or you even follow CLG, you already know it's 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 pure alpha and uh, a ton of value. But uh, definitely go check that out. Go subscribe. Go uh, follow the newsletter. Um, and also while you're at it, if you guys want to check out our content, we do host these spaces kind of regularly. We do bring on guests from community members, community leaders, project builders in the space, devs, CEOs. Uh, if you want to go to basespace.io, that's where you can check out our uh, our website, and that has our podcast listed. We're on all the kind of different streaming services. That's 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 it for me. Super. Me too. Yeah, I just wanted to <clears throat> thank you, CLG, because obviously not everybody, like I said earlier, is uh, technically advanced or as advanced as you. So, um, you know, you you definitely do a good job at spreading the information to the people that don't understand it as well. So I know a lot of people in the crowd uh, appreciate you for that. And uh, I personally appreciate you for that. So, you know, you're welcome anytime on base space. You know, you've been on here a few times. So uh, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Second, everything Chase super said, you're always welcome. Always providing based content. Um, you're the man CLG. We all, we all appreciate you. Um, Guys, I think that that's a wrap. I hate to close it out, but everyone, stay based. Have a good night. Have a good morning, wherever you're at. Peace out. See you guys. See you, everyone.